the same day he told me, I'm going back to Italy. Your mom and I aren't seeing each other. I have a new partner and she's pregnant. I just remember in that moment, the darkness hit. I went to the dentist today and like this side of my face is fully numb still. <laughs> so if I'm talking weirdly, <laughs> that is why. But ho- Or if I'm like, my face is lopsided. Anyway. I love it. Um, I, I just listened to the full interview you did on Soul Kitchen. Yeah. Do you remember that? I think it was. Yeah, it was a little while ago, but I, I remember it. Yeah. Yeah, so that was really helpful because I got a lot of context on your life as and the growing up bit so yeah I still have to start with how how you grew up but I can already I already know well I already knew you were Belgian or at least born in Belgium and French mom and Italian dad but now I know mom's actually Corsican and dad's okay. from the German speaking part of Italy well done yes and you're an only child and they had you I'm, quite, oh, they met in the European par- Parliament and yes, had you quite young. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Well done. Well, really good research. <laughs> yeah. So what else can you tell us about how you grew up? Mm. Yeah. So indeed, grew up, was born and raised in Brussels and Belgium in this kind of multicultural environment where I thought it was normal for people to speak many languages and to see themselves as a European citizen. I was very much in that bubble that strongly lived the European dream. Um, Already my parents worked at the European Parliament, even though they were assistants when they met, Um, but they were both really devoted to the cause of this kind of wider um ensemble of countries and and I remember always growing up with the sense of diversity and um multitude and difference is actually what makes us stronger and I went to a school that was a European school so everyone in the playground spoke a different language uh I was in an Italian class so I did my whole education in Italian in Belgium in this European school And I was in the Italian class, but there was also a German class and a Portuguese class and a French class. And so we each did our whole curriculum in one language. But then we had a second language, a third language and a fourth language. And we'd come together in the playground and be all together in the breaks. And so I really grew up with the sense of, yeah, of really being multicultural, of nationalities being something that defines parts of who you are but is also something that can connect you to other nationalities and so really this yeah this rooting in in diversity as being something positive what language did you speak at home I spoke French with my mom German with my dad uh, even though they split up when I was quite young so I didn't live with both of them for a long time Um, But those were my main languages at home. And then we lived actually for a year 
in Rome when I was five years old, and that's where I picked up Italian. So as you said before, even though half of my family was Italian, their mother tongue was actually German because they're from a part of Italy that used to be Austria before the First World War and then just got given to Italy. Um, and so they their strands is is actually from Austria. So I grew up with French and German. And then at age five, we moved to Rome for a year. And there I picked up Italian, went to an Italian school for a year. And then when we moved back to Belgium, because my parents separated, um, that's when they decided to put me in this European school. So I got to keep my Italian. So I was doing school in Italian, French at home, and then German with my family in Italy. And when did you learn English? English started happening around age 14. Um, it was interesting because growing up with all these languages, I felt like none of them were really mine. It was like, okay, Italian and German is my dad's side, French is my mom's. And I really longed to have a language I could express myself in and really kind of cultivate independence in. And I remember just looking around the playground and the two main languages we spoke all together were French and a bit of English. And I started realizing, like starting to travel a little bit with my mom as well, going on trips, that English was the language most people spoke. And so I started getting really excited. I was like, whoa, if I learn this language, I can speak to even more people than what I can with these three initial languages. And so I basically started self-educating before we even had our third language at school. Um, I started picking up books in English and trying to watch things in English. And then I started learning it at school. And I had one summer school in Cambridge <laughs> for 10 days where I remember all the kids were there to just have fun and play. We were like 14. There was booze around. And I was the only one that was so excited about learning the language and would literally wake up early so I could read my book. Because <laughs> I really, really, really wanted to learn English. It was it just felt like it was my language and it would open all the doors for me. Amazing. And what and did you feel like you were Belgian? Or what mm. nationality did you associate with growing up? Yeah, beautiful question. I felt like I had no shit clue what I was. <laughs> I I felt like I was not Belgian, because Belgians would tell me I wasn't Belgian and and didn't mix up that much actually with Belgian culture, even though now I realize it's it's in me. But it because my school was so international, I don't feel like it was the yeah, the core imprint of my education. But I wasn't French enough for the French people. Whenever I went back to France with my mom, they were like, oh no, you're like Belgian, Italian, whatever you are. I wasn't Italian enough for the Italians. First of all, because I spoke Italian with a slight accent. And then my German wasn't like super perfect. Like it was good, but I spoke kind of grandma German because I didn't speak it with young people. So I, I never felt like I really belonged to a country. And that was both an opportunity and also sometimes a challenge of feeling like there was no place I could really call home, no earth, no land that really was mine. Um, but I also thrived in that. I've always been someone who probably because of my context really thrives at the boundary between things. 
at the boundary between disciplines, between worlds, between belief systems, between languages, cultures, ideas. And so this kind of non-belonging to a country became my identity. Got it. And so was your mom's family in Corsica still? Part of it. Yeah, part of it. So we still sometimes go back to Corsica. Her great aunt lives there. And we have some cousins that go back. And what's interesting actually on that is that as I've gotten older, I feel like I've developed more of a relationship with the actual lands and earth and nature of where I come from. And and so it's in a way it's created a bridge to this question of where do I belong and and where is home, where I feel like I probably felt that as a kid as well. And then there was a time in the middle, in my teenage years, where I was just very confused. And I was just like, I'm from nowhere. And in the last few years, there's really been this, this sense of my body recognizes the earth that I come from. And so every time I go back to Corsica, I feel like my body actually recognizes the smells and the tastes and the bush and and in Corsica, but also in where my dad is from, South Tyrol in Italy, which is in the mountains. So there's also this really like dramatic landscape and very specific smells and the food has a very specific taste. Um, so it's interesting. I'm, I'm starting to see a shift from needing to belong to a people to now belonging to an earth or to a land or to a landscape. Amazing. So did she grow up there? No, she grew up in the south of France um, because her parents were teachers. So her mom was Corsican. Her dad was from the middle of France and they moved to the south of France to teach. Um, They were both one of them was a primary school teacher and the other one was a um, sometimes high school, sometimes university professor. Um, And so they moved to the south of France. That's where she was born. And where she was raised near Marseille. Yeah. Wow. So two beautiful places you got to visit when you're visiting <laughs> family. Yeah. And, and I do want to mention also, like take a moment to also appreciate the incredible privilege that was and that still is to have these two incredible places to go and visit. And even though my family was never affluent, I can now see just how how much richness that was in my upbringing to be spending my summers in Corsica or in in Italy. And we didn't have to go on holiday, right? Like our holiday was going to visit family. There wasn't two different categories. So for that, I'm really, yeah, I'm really grateful and I really appreciate the privilege that it's been and it continues to be. And what was it that your parents wanted for you when you were growing up? Mm. Hmm. Might sound cliche, but I think they really wanted me to be happy. And it's interesting because I speak to, so I'm, I'm a coach today and a facilitator and I work with a lot of people who have had actually quite strict childhoods and, where a lot of their work 
today, whether it's in their 20s, 30s or 40s, is to kind of rewire their relationship to what is good and what is bad. And they realize that there's a lot to deconstruct because their parents created quite a lot of strict rules around them and, and structures and, and a lot of beliefs around what is good and what is bad. And I feel like my experience was basically the opposite. Like my parents were so open and free in a lot of ways. They never created, they never defined me. They never required me to be a certain way, which sometimes actually as a child was quite confusing. Um, and it comes with a different set of emotional baggage of I still today sometimes struggle to, to feel really safe. And so I have to create structure for myself, um, which, yeah, in, in some parts of my life became too much structure where I actually created an, like created too many rules because I was in a lack of rules as a child. Um, but going back to yeah their expectations or their invitations, I feel like it was always really open and it was very much the sense of whatever makes you happy, whatever brings you jo joy, follow that. So you had no rules in terms of like you could wear whatever you wanted, do whatever, like go out whenever you wanted. Yeah, I, I did have, because I grew up mostly with, in the house with my mom and there was sometimes a few comments around like, do you think that skirt is a little short or uh, you should have told me that you were coming back at this time. So there was a little bit of, a fear sometimes that arose, but it was more a sense of fear rather than a sense of a strict rule. Huh. So did you use that independence you had? Huh. Well, it's fascinating, right? Because I had such a good girl syndrome. Like I wanted to do everything right. And I had that at school. I had that at home. And I wonder whether it's almost maybe the fact that I didn't have that many rules that made me want to really figure out the rules so that I could be good. Um, so I feel like I, I spent a lot of my time as a child and, and mostly then in between childhood and teenage years, trying to figure out what was the thing that was expected of me to try to excel at that. Um, and I definitely feel like yeah, I mean, the way I've traced it back is I link it to this kind of lack of rules that made me crave for anybody to tell me what what is right and what is wrong. And then, yeah, really trying to abide by that. Huh. So was so I it... was my own straight parent in a way. <laughs> Interesting. And was it society's expectations you were trying to live up to rather than your parents or family? Hmm. Mm. I'm going to say it was a messy mix of a lot of things. <laughs> Probably a mix of society, of some family expectations, even though it was, wasn't directing my parents, maybe looking at my grandparents and how they had raised my parents, uh, looking at my friends a lot, uh, spending a... I've always been a kind of a researcher of the of human behavior and human attitudes and emotions. And literally my favorite activity as a kid was to be invited in other people's families and just observe them 
and kind of gather data and be like, oh, they live like this and they do this because of this. And I was fascinated just by humans and why they do what they do and why they do it in a certain context and not in another. And so I feel like I, I gathered a lot of data from, yeah, from society, but also more specifically from my little microcosm, which was my friends and their families and my own family. Huh. So that makes a lot of sense with, with becoming a behavioral scientist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So how did you decide what to do when you finished school? Hmm. I think I always associated success with doing good in the world. And I think that was a direct transmissions from my parents of they're they're the kind of people who who gave up sometimes more status or more money for the sake of doing something that they felt had a greater impact. And so that was very much a transmission that I got growing up. And so when I started asking myself, what do I want to do with my time? And and having kind of the positive reinforcement of really good grades and teachers who really believed in me and even friends who were like, oh, you're going to be so successful. I was like, okay, okay, okay. I need to use this potential to do something really good. Um, and so I actually went on to study environmental sciences and international development at the London School of Economics. Um, that was my first university degree, which happened to be a little bit depressing for me, quite frankly, because I felt like a lot of the course was going through all the attempts of humans to make things better and after the attempts, all the failures and the reason why it failed. So it still entered within the bucket that I had of this interest for why do people behave the way they do and why do they behave different in different contexts? And I was really grappling with this question of like, we all know what the right thing to do is on, on a collective scale and yet nobody is doing it. And, and I started feeling a little disillusioned actually just by how massive this challenge was and and the conundrums that just showed up again and again in different international negotiations about the environment, but also about development aid and what does it even mean to support developing countries. And I don't know, there was a lot of, of, um, yeah, of cynicism that started arising. And I actually took one class in my second year that was called behavioral economics And so that was looking at um, kind of individual decision-making rather than looking at macro decision-making. And it brought in all these concepts of psychology back into economic models, which is actually how economics started. Economics was basically psychology. And then um, we tried to create, to put more numbers on them and on, on the graphs and and to quantify the whole field um, and to generalize and model. And that's what became what we know as modern economics. Anyway, so I, I thought it was fascinating to bring back this real psychological principles and concepts and look at actual human behavior rather than at 
kind of an idealized average human behavior that in the end actually doesn't cover anybody. It's like the average person is nobody in, in a lot of these um, modelization of human behavior. And so I started getting really excited. I was like, okay, I feel like this is something that's more manageable for me. Like the big scale negotiation failures feels very heavy. This feels exciting. And it feels like the return of a field that really needs to have more attention. And so I completely changed my degree, even though it was not allowed. I was like, okay, I don't want to continue doing full-time this. I'm going to pick and choose from different departments and do my own little course. And so I ended up studying uh, more behavioral economics. I ended up studying um, organizational behavior in the management department at LSE, London School of Economics. And then I started doing some classes around the philosophy of cognitive sciences and um, basically the ethics of what do we do with what we're learning about how the human mind works um, and, and how to apply that to, to policymaking. And I, I started crafting this like little beast of a degree, which I ended up really, really, really loving, um, which looked more at, yeah, slightly smaller scale behavior, individual and organizations and really starting to ask the question, okay, what do we do with all this knowledge we have about the mind and how can we close the gap between people's intention and actions? Um, yeah, so that was my first degree. Amazing. Because, yeah, straight away when you said, which I don't know what you meant by it, of the, that we know what the right thing to do is, Mm. or I don't know what you're thinking of like what the right thing is because straight away and it's like why doesn't it happen but straight away it's like because when you know how people work it's like we are all optimizing for like our own individual decisions based on like so many variables that are like specific to us and like you know survival first of all like feeding ourselves and then like different incentives with like economic incentives or whatever but it's like fun then when you understand like actually what how do humans work like you can motivate them with incentives and then which I guess then that's the whole behavioral science right it's like how do you get people to change their behavior but and also like for yourself I think you said in that interview that you're interested in when we're not behaving in a way to meet our goals and there's like this misalignment that's really interesting to you and I think it's interesting to every person listening to this because like all of us have goals that we whether it's just like I want to work out more and then we're not doing it and it's just this frustration of why isn't that happening exactly and interestingly that is also linked to my childhood because I I experienced that in, in my data gathering when I was a kid. I, I kept on coming back to this surprise of how much people around me said they wanted to do something, said they wanted to act in a certain way, and then didn't. And these were people who were educated, who were smart, who were big-hearted who actually cared about people, who were loving. And I, I was baffled every single time. I was like, well, you said you'd do this and then you're not doing it. What, what is it? And so as a kid, it was just this like curiosity mixed with some frustration. And 
honestly, I feel like it's one of the main things that has stayed, like has continued to carry me as I've developed from the more macro level. Because when I was 18, I wanted to change the entire world. And so I was like, yeah, environmental issues and international development feels like I can change the world. And then slowly but surely, I realized that my real gift is more in individual decision making. And so what started at LSE then geared, like shifted even more into uh, individual work. I did a master's uh, in behavioral sciences. I worked in a company for some time, a, a consultancy that applied behavioral science principles to different business issues. And again, it wasn't granular enough for me and it wasn't connected enough to personal well-being, which has always driven me. Um, and now for the past five years, I've had my own coaching practice where I apply all these behavioral science principles, but I mix them with transformational coaching and now more and more with somatic coaching. So looking also at the level of the body of how do we behave in habitual ways that actually promote um, different goals than what we say we want. Um, but that was really the the seed started as a child being baffled by all these adults that were saying, I want to do this and then didn't do it. And this deep, deep desire to support myself and others in bridging that gap because I saw how much suffering happened from it directly, personally, because people lost a lot of their self-worth, not actually managing to do the things that they wanted to do, but also relationally, because it was impacting families. And it was, I mean, I saw it in, in my dad, him not being able to, to live up to certain promises was impacting the whole family dynamics. Um, and I really started to feel this, yeah, this desire for us to be better equipped to, to meet our goals to to know whether the goals we speak out is even what we want and to decrease that cognitive dissonance that we all live with uh, between who we say we we, we want to be and who we actually practice to be on a daily basis. Interesting. What were the kind of promises your dad was struggling with? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I, I feel like when you ask me that question, I go back to more like my my child mentality. And so the first thing that comes up is, well, he often told me he would get me these presents and then he didn't. Or like he would say, OK, next year we're going to go skiing, just two of us and we'll take a few days off and we'll just do that. And Again, like he was never really affluent. So that was a lot. Like he didn't have a lot of holiday. That was a lot for him to promise that. So I always got so excited. And then it never happened. Or one thing that I saw with him was smoking. He wanted to stop smoking for basically 15 years. And every day he said, tomorrow I'm going to stop. It was really the tomorrow I'm going to syndrome um, again and again and again. Um and and I even saw it in my mom of like, I felt like she really, she said she wanted to be happy. And yet a lot of what she was cultivating on a daily basis were habits and ways of thinking and ways of seeing the world that actually were cultivating suffering rather than happiness. 
And so there's, yeah, there was a lot of pieces there that started arising for me of like, wow, like, isn't it wild that we we have these deep, big desires and we can't somehow we can't get there. Somehow there's something that happens in our psyche, in the way that we're designed, in the way that we move habitually in the world that actually becomes an obstacle to what we we deeply desire. And I see this in my clients all the time. Like the work is not to say, to define the goal. Like even though that is a big piece of the work, because often people think they want something. Like so many of my clients come to me and they're like, I want more money. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's dig into that. What does that mean? And then you realize it means freedom. It means possibility. It means more meaning because they can allocate that money to something different than the situation they're in in that moment. And so then we start to question, okay, how can you start practicing and cultivating these qualities already today to get out of that syndrome of when I have X, I will be Y. Um, But it's so, yeah, there's a big piece around like defining the goal. But then the biggest piece is in the practice, is in the practicing something different, because what happens is not only that we, we we get to basically experience a whole new reality, not only do we realize that our goals were like what we really wanted to feel was actually a lot more accessible than what we thought, but the biggest piece and the biggest challenge is we realize we have to die as the identity that we were before. Because most of the time people hang on to their ways of being because they're identified with them, because they believe that to be them. And, and I can take my own example of like my biggest struggle in my life was my relationship to food. And for about 15 years, I, I was literally struggling on a daily basis. And I kept on saying that what I wanted was freedom. I got to a point where there was only 20 foods I could eat without having an allergic reaction. And I knew that there was more than just like an immunity problem. Like I felt it in my bones, even though I saw all the experts and of course, every specialist told me it was something different. I knew inside of me that the answer was inside of me. But every single day, I chose the suffering. And it wasn't because I was stupid. It wasn't because I was self-flagellating. It was because that became my identity. I was the girl who struggled with food. And, mm-hmm. and letting go of that felt so scary. Felt so, so scary. And so I, one of the biggest pieces in my coaching practice is actually to support and hold people as they shed who they thought they were and as they start practicing and embodying a new shape and a new person, which has a completely different perspective on reality. And often that means making big drastic changes. And and what, what might be subtle changes from the outside are big drastic changes. It might be drink quitting drinking I don't know that's something that comes up for a lot of my clients is they're like whoa from this new place I literally cannot drink alcohol anymore and so that also impacts their their social dynamics and so it's yeah it's a lot of subtle changes but that create this really drastic choice that often actually getting what we say we want requires us to die as who we think we are and that's the reason why we don't do the change. Mm. So interesting. 
I have so much to say on this. Okay, but I have also a lot of questions. First, did you struggle with that yourself growing up when you noticed like, oh, my mum's saying she wants this, but she's not doing it or my dad's wants to quit smoking, but he's not doing it. Were you generally able to like execute on the goals you had for yourself? Hmm. Yeah, I'd say I was a mega executor. <laughs> I think that that became my fuel. I, I discovered later it wasn't the right fuel, but for a while it became my fuel of I'm going to be the opposite. Everything I say I do, I'm going to do. To the point of, I, I think a lot of my issues with my health were connected to that because I was driving myself to the ground because um, I was in constant performance mode. Um so I'd say, I, it, yeah, it almost had like the, the effect of me wanting to be the opposite of that. Um, and mostly because I, I did suffer from it, uh, especially in, again, like entering that child mentality when my dad offered me to go on, on the ski holiday, just the two of us, and I got really excited and then it didn't happen And it wasn't that he said it's not going to happen. It just didn't happen. And so I kept on waiting and nothing came. And at the time, from this like place of being a child, I literally believed something was wrong with me. I was like, oh, I must have done something wrong. I must not be good enough. I must have changed. Maybe he doesn't love me anymore. Um. And I think that was a, in general, a pattern that I had of like hyper personal personalizing the things that didn't happen to me, um, especially from my parents. And I think that shaped a lot of my identity as well. I mean, I, I looked for approval so hard for most of my life and I'm still working on that. Like I work with people pleasers because I was like, I have, speaking of master, like, grad like degrees I have a lot of degrees in life and I definitely have like a master's in people pleasing and I probably have a PhD in the art of unhappiness so I'm I'm working with my clients not from a place of you know I I was born perfect and here is my medicine I'm coming from a place of I literally cultivated and practiced driving myself to the ground and people pleasing and living outside of myself for most of my life. And so I, I understand the ins and outs of that. Um, and also I know that a different reality is possible and I'm kind of like the embodiment of it, even though of course I'm not, I'm not done. Like I will be working on people pleasing for my entire life and seeking people's approval which probably underneath I'm still seeking for like my parents approval um but I'm learning to live with that in a in a more subtle relaxed compassionate way and I can now meet that part when she arises and she's like I just really really want approval right now and I'm like okay Silva okay Silva we're gonna we're gonna hold you we're gonna give you attention we're not gonna repress you we're not gonna starve you we're gonna hold you and love you and and maybe get some approval amazing yeah I think that I mean that's 
totally normal for a child to like rather than it being hyper personalizing it's just like that's the natural response of a child like that's a heartbreaking situation for a child to be there like waiting Mm -hmm. especially you as a you know as an only child it's like that's a very special relationship I mean anyone's relationship with their parent but um and then yeah you create meaning about why that is and the meaning is yeah there's something wrong with me I had that one as well so (laughs) but probably so many of us do anyway um what what do what does this tell me about this PhD in unhappiness when did that like start coming up in your life before that, I just want to give a little shout out to my half brother because I have a little brother who's 15 years younger than me and I haven't mentioned him yet. We never lived in the same place. So I unfortunately haven't got to really get to know him that well, uh, but we're starting to build a beautiful relationship and yeah, he's just a sweet teenager right now. And I'm really proud because he finds all adults really annoying at the moment. Like he's really in his teenage phase, but he finds me pretty cool. So I feel like I've I've reached like like top peak level coolness if a teenager thinks I'm cool. Um, so I just want to brag Amazing. about that and also send him a little love. On your dad's side or mom's side? On my dad's side, yeah. So he lives in Italy with my dad um, and his mom. But my dad and his mom are no longer together. Yeah. Yeah. So... I feel like that's a good segue actually into the PhD in in the art and science of unhappiness. Um, So I actually was quite a happy, bubbly child. Like I was, everyone called me a little sunshine. Uh, I always laughed. I was always curious about humans. Like my parents kept on losing me because I'd be going off in restaurants and streets to just speak to people or look at them or ask questions. I love to ask questions to people. And I love to dance as well. So anytime there was any sort of music, I'd be like, yeah, just like doing a boogie, um, going in the middle of like musicians and dancing for them. I loved, yeah, like joy, like feeling this joy brought me so much joy. And I remember just being so connected to my joy. Um, But as I just mentioned, so my dad is no longer together with uh, my little brother's mom. And this pattern of separation is one that his parents have as well and that my mom's parents have as well. So in my direct family, no one has ever been lastingly married or happily ever together. And I feel like some of the generations above were also kind of like hiddenly, yeah, not fully with each other. So there was really this, I, I, I was raised in this context of my parents and all of my grandparents separated and split up in often not the best conditions and with a lot of suffering. Um, So there was that. There was also the fact that on my mom's family line specifically, I really feel, and I've been working with this quite a bit with my mom as well. My mom's an amazing woman and she's so yeah, ready and open to speak about family stuff as well. And so we've been working together with this 
this real heaviness that came from her kind of mother's family line, which we call this like loyalty to pain. And it's, it's really the sense of in order to be part of the family, we have to experience suffering and pain and we have to be a victim and we have to be a small betrayed woman. Um, and it's interesting how we have these loyalties that just pass down from generation to generation in the same way that we, there's other types of patterns, but this is one that I know really well because it was so anchored in my family line and that I saw my mom battle with for most of her life. I feel like there's really been a shift the last 10 years, but before that, like it was just like some days she was her and sometimes some days she was carrying this kind of deep, dark, like ancestral sadness specifically connected to the feminine experience. And so I was this like bubbly little sunshine child. And I felt like there was always this shadow over me of one day I'm going to become like that too. It's just a matter of time until the shadow of our lineage catches up with me. And it's funny because I literally, I have like little stories of me as a child speaking about like this shadow that I feel like is following me. Um, and there, there is the fact that I grew up partly for part of my, my childhood, my mom had bouts of depression, of not feeling well. And in those moments, it was just the two of us. So my dad was not around. And so I found myself from a young age, basically taking care of my mom. I remember specifically when we came back from Rome, I was seven years old, six years old, and I really took on the the weight uh, and it really felt like a weight, the weight of, of making sure that she was fine and of um, giving her massages when she had headaches and, and really going into the identity of a healer uh, and of the, yeah, like my identity being to make her better. Um, so all these pieces was like, I felt like I was this little ball of light, probably also ball of light because there was this darkness and, and to counteract it. And then my parents kind of got back together and then separated again when I was 14. And at the same, the same day, my dad announced me that he was leaving because he had come back to Brussels for a couple of years. The same day he told me, I'm going back to Italy your mom and I aren't seeing each other. I have a new partner and she's pregnant. And so this was my little brother who was about to come to the earth. And I just remember in that moment, the darkness hit. It was like, shit, like it's going to hit the, like shit's going to hit the fan again. My mom's going to go back into depression. I can't handle it. Like I, ha I wasn't able to be a child. I'm 14 now. I can't go back there. And so I just remember feeling this, like this pressure cooker on me and she didn't end up collapsing, but I ended up kind of collapsing. And for the first time in my life, actually having the experience of being the child. So that's when my digestive issues started. Then I started controlling food. It went into anorexia. I was very much in the, in like, wanting to take up as little space as possible. Like I literally, I remember 
saying that I couldn't become an adult yet because I hadn't lived my childhood. I was 14 and I was saying, I can't become an adult because I hadn't lived my childhood. And I literally shrinked my body. And it was this like process of, and it was partly a control piece, but it was partly, there was so many emotions coming up that I literally couldn't eat. I felt like everything I couldn't feel as a child was just coming up. And I was nauseous all the time, had this like contractions in my stomach. It was just unable to put anything more than a carrot in my mouth. Um, And so I went through this first dark phase, which lasted, it was like one year was really bad. And then it started getting a little bit better. But from then, I feel like this flavor of darkness always stayed. And it always showed up in my relationship to food. I went then to university. And while I was at university, the kind of wanting to eat as little as possible turned into eating as healthy as possible. And so I was every day at the gym. I was eating all the healthy things and then binging at night, binging alcohol and then binging food. Um, And so it was always this thing of like, even though people still continue to see me as the sunshine and, and this light, it's almost like I was carrying this dirty little secret that I was actually dark and bad and had all these patterns. And I genuinely believe that's just, it was part of me. It's like, it's who I am. People see the light. I'm actually also dark. Um, And then it continued like this for a few years, like different shades, of course. It almost became, I'd say, milder and, and more diffused as I got older but still with this belief anchored in me of, oh, it's just the ancestral thing. Like, it's just like the family lineage that caught up. And at 14, it caught me and it's going to be me my entire life. And it stayed really strong until I'd say four years ago, five years ago, actually when I started my coaching practice and I started really diving deeper into personal development work I actually started meditating eight years ago and that already started giving me glimpses of, oh, there's a peace beyond this. Um, And then the last five years, I've just done a lot, a lot of work on this and really going, diving deep into a lot of the things that were holding me back. And I feel like the real shift happened just over a year ago. I spent six weeks in Nicaragua doing a training in Tao Tantric arts for women, which I wasn't planning on bringing in my work. It was literally for me. I was like, I want to know these ancient energetic practices that basically have always helped women be in sovereignty of their bodies and cultivating their sensual energy. And I was just really curious. And I did this training thinking I'm just here for curiosity. And I fainted at the end of the first week had an out-of-body experience, didn't know that even existed, didn't believe it, had an out-of-body experience, literally felt like I had a moment where I had to choose, do I live, keep on living, do I not? I was like half my size that I am now. I was depleted, only 20 foods I could eat. And I literally feel like in that moment I chose, I was like, okay, I choose a different narrative. I am not the darkness of my lineage and I get to live differently. And there was really a shift in that moment at the cognitive level And then at the somatic energetic level, the following five weeks completely shifted how I live in my body. And from then I started reintroducing all of the foods, even though all the doctors told me I I would never be able to eat those foods again. So I reintroducing all of those foods, completely rewiring my relationship to my body, to my worth, to how I want to show up in the world. 
And the fullness that I feel today is something that is only comparable to what I felt as a child when I was dancing in the middle of the streets and asking questions to a bunch of people. Um, and that I genuinely thought I lost at age 14. And turns out it was just a cloud that I started identifying with. Um, and so that is why I have a PhD in the art and science sort of unhappiness. <laughs> oh my God. Wait, so that was only a year ago. Well, the, the full rewiring was a year ago. Yeah. I'd say that the last seven years, mostly the last five years were all parts like little pieces that allowed them to, for the last shift to happen. Um, but yeah, it's only been a year that I'm able to enjoy like spaghetti again and, or a pizza or yeah, a lot of actually my, my traditional foods. <laughs> Waffles. Waffles. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Okay. Wait. So what happened in this? This is, I knew we were just going to have way too much to talk about anyway, <laughs> but what happened in the outer body experience? Oh, yeah. So it's it's interesting because I, I still don't know what I haven't actually read much, much of the research on out of body experiences. So I don't know whether it's something that I really lived or whether it's what my mind constructed out of what happened afterwards. All I know is I went down to breakfast. I had woken up early after a whole week of like intense practices from like 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. This was Saturday, our only day off. And I decided to wake up early to go do yoga in like the scorching sun, <laughs> which gives you an idea of like still like the rules I was living by. And I go down to breakfast, go up to one of the teachers um, just to say hi. And she says, hey, Silva, I've heard about your allergies. Someone told me about them. Can you tell me more? And so I just give her a little description. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's been seven years because they built up in seven years. It's been seven years that I started getting increasingly allergic to, to different foods. And at the moment, I can only eat these 20 foods safely, which was a nightmare for most people around me and for myself at every single meal. Um, and she looks at me and she says, it sounds like you're allergic to life. And in that moment, I passed out. So in that moment, like I literally collapsed on the ground. They just like pulled a chair, I think. Anyway, started like trying to like make me come back to life. I, I was kind of there. I was like, or like still hearing some sounds. I know they were like screaming in Spanish because we were in Nicaragua. They were like, get her some alcohol, put her feet up. I just remember being there. And then all of the sounds went off. It's like I couldn't hear anything anymore. It was just a, this absolute sense of peace. And the image that keeps on arising, and again, don't know if my mind constructed it, is this sense of like in this peace, slowly starting to lift out of my body and feeling like I was floating just above my body and I could actually see the scene. And so that's the, the funky thing is I remember things, like I recalled things happening saying, oh yeah, this woman was doing this at that moment that I wouldn't have been able to know if I was actually passed out. So it's possible, again, that there, my hearing was still active and I made sense of what was happening. 
But the image that almost came back like a dream for me when I then woke up three hours later was the sense of like floating above my body and really having this moment of choosing. Do I just give up now? And I can because, wow, does this feel good to be at peace finally? Or do I go back? And I remember being in this like floaty state for a while. And then all the women around me, because it was only women on this training, there was 30 women and all the women around me started singing this chant that we had learned the day before, which is an old chant of the goddess Kuan Yin, uh, which is the goddess of compassion and healing. And we had just learned this beautiful little chant to sing it all together. Um, and they had told us the story that um, in ancient times, this chant was used to heal people. And so they all gathered around me and started chanting this Kuan Yin chant. And I remember hearing that, like that is when my hearing came back and then saying, okay, this is why I'm coming back. I'm coming back for this love. I'm coming back for this community. I'm coming back for whatever this is that they're transmitting through their sound. And I started like slowly feeling my body again. I started breathing again. Apparently like five minutes passed in between the two. I wasn't like, I wasn't medically dead. I think I was just like out, but I started like slowly coming back to my body then. And then they laid me down. Um, then my inner manager came back and I was like, I can take over. And I was like giving directions to people. They were like, Silva, stop, <laughs> just <laughs> relax. And so I went back into like some like half drowsy state. And then they took me to hospital and I stayed there for three hours. They put me on a drip. And three hours later, I felt myself again. And so then I went back to the training and they actually wanted me to step off, like to go home. And I said, okay, I hear you, but I just need to sleep on it. And I went to bed and I woke up the next day and I've never felt so alive in my entire life. I woke up and I felt this fire burning in my belly. I felt this like sense of like a mix of just joy and rage and reclamation. And I was like, fuck, like this is the moment that I get to change the story. It's not only for myself, but for my entire lineage. Um, and then I stayed and we started doing a lot more energetic practices and a lot of embodiments. So a lot of dancing, a lot of moving energy, moving emotions, um, which is a thing I think I was avoiding a lot because um, I wanted to to stay put together and yeah, and being in this loving, safe environment, rewiring a lot of my conditioning also around women and feeling safe around women and women supporting women and learning all these ancient practices, both from Taoism and from Tantra, specifically focused on on feminine vitality, really. Like they're all just ancient practices for us to feel more alive and vital, which does include feeling our emotions and uh, connecting to our sensual energy. So yeah, that was like the first, like the, the choice kind of choice point. And then the, the embodied energetic rewiring. And then after that was the hard work. It was actually going back home. I went back to Belgium for the first time again, since leaving uh, for university. So 10 years had passed and um, I was like, okay, I need to do this work here. I'm integrating it here. 
and slowly but surely started reintroducing all the foods and having reactions and still just trusting that my body would heal itself. Huh. What kind of reactions would you have? Massive rashes all over my body, uh, really bad headaches, nausea, sometimes for up to a day. Um, so strong reactions. <laughs> and how did they go away? I mean, I definitely feel like I need to do more research into that. And I've already started because I wasn't planning on teaching about this. For me, it was just like, I've come out of my own cage. Um, and I was just so proud and chuffed and so excited to be able to live again. Um, and then because I'm already in the world of well-being and personal development, it naturally emerged that people started to ask me loads of questions, especially women, but actually also men started uh, reaching out for two main reasons. Some of them because they have some connection with food and or exercise or their bodies that is slightly dysregulated. And other people literally just because they witnessed me and they said, what the hell happened? You were you were very happy before, but you were you were half of who you are now and and they just saw the surge of aliveness and they saw the freedom that came from this and so they started questioning okay what what happened how can I do the same how can I free myself of my own um prison which for every person is something different right like for me it was it was food and my relationship to my body but for other people it might be performance or perfectionism or whatever it is that they are caged by and defined by again that piece around identity um, and so slowly but surely I started teaching more about it or rather just like humbly sharing about my experience. I'm not sure it's called teaching, but humbly sharing about my experience and sharing more about the steps I had taken, not only in that one, one year, because I feel like that was just the culmination and almost the easy part. Like I, I spent five years building up confidence to get to that part. And then it was just doing it. But I think the, the, the real work is about, finding the courage to challenge the story we tell about ourselves that we think is literally who we are. Um, and so I've started sharing more about this. I started a newsletter, which people seem to love. And then I started, this is like my, one of my favorite uh, little things I'm playing with at the moment, uh, hosting dinner parties, which I'll, the moment are only for women, but I'll, I'm expanding also with uh, men um and different genders um but at the moment it's just for female um bodies and it's basically a, a mini version of my what I went through in my relationship to food and so we start by really getting into the body even before putting any food in our bodies like actually realizing we have a body using different embodiment practices, my favorite ones that I use every single day and have really changed my life. Um, so they can also bring that home. Then we bring in the food and we do a lot of work around food, a lot of mindful eating, but also pleasure eating of like, how can we actually reclaim our pleasure and aliveness and shamelessness around food? Um, some deconstruction around that as well, like actually using the power of community to see what are the drivers of how we eat? What are the, the rules and ideas that we 
put in front of our, like in between us and the food, realizing also how much we eat from our minds rather than from our bodies and how much that is impacting our health. Uh, there's this amazing study called the milkshake study uh, where they saw that uh, by giving the same milkshake uh, to two different groups and telling one that the milkshake was high calorie and really indulgent and the other group that it was low calorie and really healthy, they had a completely different biological metabolic response to the smoothie. The people who had, who believed it was uh, indulgent and high calorie ended up producing three times more of the satiety hormone than the people who believed it was healthy, which is wild. It's the same smoothie and just what we believe about it makes us a lot more satiated or not. And this is just like one metric, right? And there's so many other amazing pieces of research around that. So we spend a lot of time deconstructing how our mind is impacting our experience of how we um, digest and uh, integrate the food we're having. Um, then we go through an emotional process of actually we use kind of the charge of everything we've explored to really get into the rage that most women hold around like the silliness of how we've been told to relate to our bodies and food. And so we really allow ourselves to feel anger, which is often the emotion that's more repressed in women and more invited in men. Like a lot of men are told anger is the only right emotion they can feel for women. It's like the only they can't feel. So there's something so powerful about reclaiming the anger. And so we really go into process through music and through movement um, of, yeah, feeling, reclaiming, uh, releasing the anger. And then we move any sadness that's there, or any grief from all the moments we basically betrayed our own body for the sake of outside ideals and question and, and uh, concepts and beliefs. Um, and then we finish up with the dessert, which is, um, yeah, like the cherry on top, which is basically, again, a rewiring deep pleasure into the experience of eating. Um, so that's like my my love loved format uh, for, for these dinners um, and that I'm starting to expand more of. And I really see them as research grounds because, again, like, I'm, I'm a trained behavioral scientist. I'm a trained transformational coach. I'm a trained somatic coach and now also a Tao ta tantric teacher. And the food piece is something that I think we, we, so many of us get wrong still and is still so charged. And so I see these as in a way being able to, to share some of my journey and share some of the tools that have worked for me, but also as research grounds to see what do we as a community and society need to finally get free um, around the topics of food and our bodies. Um, and so I'm doing, I started these in August. I'm starting to do them all over the place, collaborating with chefs as well. So they get to bring their food magic um, and, yeah and doing more interviews and research around that this topic as well because I I really want to understand it and I'm a trained researcher and I love research and I love asking questions and I love going up to people and and understanding um so this is really one of the things that is carrying me at the moment and really firing me up because I've seen in my own life the yeah, really the the shadow and the joy that live in our relationship to food and, uh, and our bodies. Um, 
and yeah, continuing my one-to-one work as well with clients who sometimes speak about food, sometimes not, uh, but who are still in this like deep desire of moving beyond uh, their limited identity and actually stepping towards what they truly desire by slowly practicing to be someone different. Um, and yeah, expanding my research around the piece of food, pleasure, sensuality, bodies, working with more and more people and genders and experiences and backgrounds, and hopefully creating a, a body of work that is really going to be supportive for, for a variety of communities and hopefully going to bring some good to, to this conversation and, and this reality of the struggles we have around food and body and, and our experience of just being like a, a human shape and a human body. This is so cool because this literally like applies to everyone. Like it's, I feel like it's so uncommon to find someone, at least in our society, who has a like amazing relationship with food because I guess because the whole food system as well and like even like advertise I'm like now I look at advertising it's like you're advertising poison <laughs> like everywhere but it's just like you know anyway it's so complicated for and everyone has that and it's not like alcohol or smoking where you can just like cut it out for people who you know if it's extremely <laughs> damaging it's like heroin like don't keep heroin in the house kind of thing but it's like food you can't remove it from your life. Um, yeah, can I add but- one piece on that? It, it is because it's so pervasive. It is because it's so present in our society that it's incredibly important to do this as a community as well. And that's why I, I shifted to really creating these dinners because even though I saw a lot of progress in my one-to-one work that was focused on food. We need the reassurance from other people that it's okay for us to actually free ourselves from these precepts because they're everywhere. Like I've started going to the gym here. I live in Lisbon at the moment. I started going to a gym. There isn't one class where a teacher doesn't mention get fit, get that summer body ready, uh, lose that extra pound. Like, it's pervasive. It's wild. And I don't think we even realize, as you said, like advertisement, any sort of messaging, there's really this worshiping of, of thinness and fitness, which in my case, like I can tell you, I was fucking thin and I was not healthy. I have, I was not healthy. I was exactly maybe what, what some people would want to become. And and I was not only miserable, but actually my health was really impacted by it. So it's, yeah, like the conversation is is all skewed. And there's, I mean, the, the, the diet industry is a 224 billion diet in, industry. Like it's, it's wild. There's so much money behind. And it's driving everyone to the ground. Like I was listening to a podcast the other day of a woman who worked for Wellness Magazine for 20 years And her job was literally to be the columnist for the new diets that were coming in. And every diet that came in for 20 years, she was hoping that would be the diet that would change everyone's life. Turns out what was damaging was not people's weight in the first place. It was the constant, incessant sense that we need to change our bodies to be better. 
and of course there's there's health conversations to be had i'm not saying like everyone should like it's just about you know like having mcdonald's every day and that's fine and it's just in the mind i'm not saying that but i truly believe that a lot of the health issues especially chronic health issues we're seeing all around the world are linked to the fact that we're just disconnected from our bodies and we're acting and behaving based on information in the mind rather than actually listening and relating and being in 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 relationship and in conversation with our own bodies and i know that it's it's a lifelong journey like again i just want to say i'm i'm not saying that i'm fixed on this like I still have days where I wake up and I'm like, "Oh, I had a lot of dinner last night and I should probably have less for breakfast." And then I realize I'm hungry and I'm confused. And and it's really about like rewiring that slowly and gently and using the power of community because we yeah, we are social beings and we it's really really hard to free ourselves in our own like room and then to be immune to all the messaging around us. We we need spaces where we can be seen in our struggles, but also where we can be seen in our liberation. And that's one thing I saw because so many of these like groups around eating behavior or body image issues are actually strengthening the victim mentality and they're strengthening the identity as someone who has an issue with food or their bodies. And what I'm really interested in is creating spaces where we can actually celebrate our courage and we can be in the yeah in the shared liberation work um and see ourselves like if we were to choose an identity let's choose the identity of being liberators of this like societal s- struggle and beef with food and and bodies rather than actually going deeper in the victim mentality of i have an issue with this which again so much compassion so much love for it i had it still have it in many ways and can we can the conversation become one of empowerment rather than one of of um pathologizing amazing yeah i guess cuz it can cuz people come at it from so many angles and it's kind of maybe it's like two sides of one coin because when people worry about like oh my god you can't you know it's like health is important blah 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 but it's I think it's still that emotional coping bit or that emo the the like it's like using it as a substance like one the like you're addressing the same thing like whether you're coming at it from a bit of too much control or a bit of the mind taking over to be like, this is how I'm going to soothe you and I'm going to use sugar and put, it's still the disconnection with the body. So um, by addressing that, like, you know, being with the body, listening with the body, like when you're, by removing the shame, it doesn't mean everyone's going to be like, become like so overweight because removing the shame means, yeah, because when you also... Yeah, it's weird because I was thinking, sorry, I'm just saying lots of words. I was thinking when you, you were talking about the identity thing, for something that I've had to work on with my identity to do with food because and my like being broken thing because my brother had diabetes and then so the, the food in the house had to change and then he got this special food only when he's like 
blood sugar level, whatever. Like, obviously, he was really unwell, but children don't understand that. So I just saw, like, he gets special food. I don't. There's something wrong with me. But then as an adult, it's made me be, like, healthy food sucks. It's so boring. Like, and I have to have, like, bad food because it means special food. And then I've had to, like, rewire this which is like amazing. Like the last workplace I was at, we were so lucky to have food ordered for us every day. And they people would order from this like healthy place. And I was like, that's so lame. Like that sucks. Like that's so boring. Like getting a salad is so boring. I hate that. Like I will never be that person. But then I was like, actually, <laughs> I kind of want to eat better food so but then it's like I had to change literally change my identity of like salads not lame like it's like (laughs) like I'm someone who eats salad which still I find like hard to say but I (laughs) I feel like it's this but I feel like it's all the same stuff it's like the disconnect it's like what does my body and some days my body needs like fries like that's what I had for lunch today whatever but I mean my body probably didn't need that but whatever I felt like I don't know it's like but it's all just when you're you know it's nothing really to worry about when you know you and your body are a team and you're listening and you're and the emotional stuff as well that comes up if you usually soothe with like sugar or same with alcohol or cigarette or whatever it's sex or shopping it's just like having that awareness it just becomes yeah obviously more complicated with food because you do have to eat food so it's hot so you can trick yourself of whether you're soothing or or not but yeah yeah thank you thank you so much for sharing that and yeah for sharing your experience of it as well and indeed like I feel like the direction of your experience almost shows even more the absurdity of of what we live in, right? Of like creating this, attaching this emotional value to a certain type. And I'm not saying your experience is absurd. I'm saying us as human attaching certain emotional or ethical value around food and kind of categorizing a certain type of food as one thing and another type as another thing. And that's what I love when we come together in groups and communities that we see we all have completely different roles around that. Like I was exactly the opposite, right? For me, healthy foods were morally better, bad foods. I I remember feeling so much judgment when I was seeing my friends go and order a burger. Like I would always have the salad and then I would watch them eat the burger and be like, do they know they're going to die after this? Like literally that was what was going on in my mind. And so the, the work is not about just like, yeah, like, you know, not restricting or not being healthy. Like the work is just about finding where we put an emotional and ethical value around food and how can we start decoupling that from the food we actually eat how can we start removing the layers of ethics morality and emotions on how we eat and and one thing i want to share and if anyone wants to dive like anyone listening wants to dive more into this work um i would highly recommend to start with the book intuitive eating it's an amazing body of work that is really about this idea of how do we come back to listening to the body knowing that 
especially if there is a lot of emotional connection to food in our experience, we're not going to know what our body wants, right? Like the mind is going to be so loud and we may have kind of wired our body to respond in a certain way to certain types of food. So there's a whole first piece of work that's not about listening to the body because the body signals are not clear, but about noticing where is their emotionality and morality and how can I start challenging that? And so the whole work around this would be, okay, just for the time that you're doing this for these experiments, forget about long-term health, right? Let's, sorry, let forget about short-term health. We're thinking about long-term mental health here. And so for the sake of long-term mental health, what we're going to do for the frame, and we could, like, I, I, for me, it was three months. For the time of the three months, I'm going to challenge every single belief I have around food. So if my mind tells me, I'm going to die if I eat this fry, and I literally felt like I was going to die if I eat this fry, I'm going to eat that fry, and I'm not going to die, and ta-da, I'm going to start rewiring my mind. So this is actually a behavioral approach of you're not thinking, you're not like spending time processing of, I think I'm scared of fries because this happened to me in my past. No, you're scared of fries. Fries are not deadly. One fry is not going to kill you. Have the fry, realize you're still alive and keep on going with your other fears. And of course, this is a process that for people who have a very disordered relationship to food or one that is quite strong, it's really important to get some support because it can get messy and it can bring up a lot of emotions that when we're not suppressing them or, or infiltrating them into our relationship to food will come out in other places. And that was the most humbling part for me. I was like, oh crap, like when I'm not focused all the time on food, I'm actually having to feel my feelings. And that's the thing I wasn't wanting to feel. So highly recommend, especially if there's a lot of charge, to work with a person or to work with a group of people to do this rewiring process. But my invitation is also to see it as a very playful affair, like the, the piece around the waffle. I loved waffles when I was a kid and I had literally banned waffles from my life for 10 years. And so the moment I allowed myself to have a waffle again, it was the most ecstatic, like of all the spiritual practices I've ever done, that was the most spiritual moment of my life of just biting into that waffle and tasting and smelling childhood in a food and having my entire mind going crazy saying, you can't have this. It's really bad for you. And me not, it wasn't an indulgence. It was a re, like really a challenging that belief and reclaiming my pleasure and aliveness through the act of eating that waffle. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a whole first layer, which is just rewiring of like, where have we attached emotionality and morality to food? How can we challenge our beliefs? Not thinking about our short-term short -term health, because yes, we might have a stomach ache after that waffle if we haven't eaten a waffle in 10 years. And it doesn't mean the waffle is bad. It just means we haven't had a waffle in 10 years. Um, and then slowly, it, it it's like the as we challenge the emotionality and morality starts decreasing naturally because you're challenging it with your behavior rather than with your, with your mind and with um, story. And then there's like a second phase of, okay, now that your body actually knows everything is a choice and everything is accessible, how do you start moving with it, listening to it, understanding what are your hunger cues, what are the signals, when do you salivate, what moment of the day is it? And then it becomes more subtle work. And that's also beautiful. 
Um, but that first phase, it's so exciting. It's so fun. Like I highly recommend for people to go into it, even if for them, it's just like they haven't had cookies in three years, have your cookie. Like, and if you're really, really terrified, have your cookie with a friend or someone who can support you in the process. Um, and then start actually giving your body the ability to choose for itself. Um, yeah, that's what I'm going to say. Amazing. Um, can we please do a part two? Because I have so many more. <laughs> we like haven't even got your journey bit of how you became a coach, which I'm super interested in. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love that. Okay, so then I'll just, I usually ask three questions at the end, but I'll just ask you one of them (laughs) and save the other two. So how do you stay grounded? Mm. For me, it's really my embodiment practices. I feel like I spent so much of my life living outside of my body. And as I said before, like I've got a master's in people pleasing and I literally learned as a child how to read other people's cues and emotions and reactions. So I would be able to predict them and to know how to respond and to be how they wanted me to be. And I think that's a very big trace of, my mom having been really unwell. And so I always wanted to be, give her exactly what she needed. Cause I think I was terrified as a child that she would die and that I would be left alone. And um, so I really have this piece in me of, and, and I'm still like, it happens sometimes of like, I notice I'm not in my experience. I'm outside of me and I'm trying to read the entire environment. And one thing that has really, really helped me to, feel grounded, which for me is just to be in my body and to be in my experience are subtle, very easy uh, embodiment practices. And one thing that I really love to do and works for me every single time is just placing my hands on my body. And it's so simple. And yet just the act of feeling that touch and having this meeting of my body and my body and trying to bring my attention to the contact point between my hands and my body and feeling the sensations that I notice of like, oh, there's some warmth, there's some pressure. Sometimes it's just numbness. But bringing my attention to that contact point between my body and my body, like straight away brings me back into my experience. And so I, I do that often, for example, when I'm, I mean, I did this a few times during our conversation, just like on my belly. But especially when I'm in person with people, I I sometimes just put place my hands on my legs sometimes on my belly, sometimes on my heart. And I do it quite naturally now, but it has completely shifted my ability to stay in the present moment and to stay grounded in my body as I move through the world. Amazing. Okay, and where can people find you in the meantime? Yes, so people can find me on Instagram at Silba Staffler, so S-I-L-B-A. Uh, S-T-A-F-F-L-E-R Silva Staffler um, and they can join my newsletter which they can found on my, find on my social media uh, it's on my bio uh, the newsletter is mostly about food, pleasure and sensuality and I share also musings about behavioral change 
Um, but it's really focused on, yeah, on this journey of coming home to the body and how to in-source rather than outsource um, our, our life. I signed up to it earlier today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where's your name from, by the way, your first name? Oh, that's another story. Uh, it's the name of an island in Croatia. I'm not Croatian. I was not conceived there. Um, both my parents have a different story. My mom said they wanted to go to this island. Then there was a storm and they never made it. So they called me after this island. And my dad said he decided when he was 15 years old, because he went to that island, that he would call his daughter like that. So anyway, I'm not Croatian, was not conceived there, but I'm named after this beautiful little island in the north of Croatia. Um which I visited many times since, and I'm always very proud, and I claim it's my island <laughs> um, while I'm there. Love it. Cool. Anything else? I feel complete. Thank you so much. <laughs> Great. I look forward to continuing. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, feel free to share it with someone. And also... Um, random 23 year old just messaged me on Instagram and told me he found the podcast through the algorithm. So it actually does help if you review the podcast and subscribe or follow. And then you get to find out about future episodes as well.